Hello, and welcome to The Promise of Discovery, a podcast where members and investigators at the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center talk about their research in intellectual and developmental disabilities. Good afternoon. My name is Courtney Taylor, and I direct communications for the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center. I'm here today with Dr. Eric Carter, who is Cornelius Vanderbilt Chair in Special Education at Vanderbilt University, as well as the co-director of the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center's University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities, or USED. Over the span of his career, Dr. Carter has engaged in a robust and highly impactful body of research, training, and mentoring activities, as well as best practice implementation. His work has focused in areas such as adolescent transitions to adult life, social interaction and friendships, school and community inclusion, faith and disability, and belonging. And I hope we can get into all or many of those topics today. Um, Hi, Dr. Carter. Thanks for being with me here today and talking with us. Thank you, Courtney. Always good to talk with you. Absolutely. Well, we're going to talk about a lot. Um, we have a lot of questions, um, but we want to take a broad look at the, the work that you've done here at Vanderbilt. But before we do, I do want to give you an opportunity. Listeners should know that you've made an announcement that you will be leaving Vanderbilt um, in December. That's this month, recording to 2022. Um, to the extent that you feel comfortable, would you share about the decision to leave and what's next for your professional life? Sure, sure. This is a this is a hard place to leave. There's so much compelling work and and compelling people and partnerships and impact that's just so just deep and wide throughout the state and all around the country. So when I think about the work that that I've been doing to date, at least around the areas of inclusive education and transition to adulthood, I honestly can't think of a better place uh, to be. But you know, sometimes we're we're called to new things or new places to have some kind of different impact and and maybe to follow another area of passion, uh, or in my case, to tackle, I think, a critical issue that's that's maybe being overlooked or maybe being ignored. And so, as you know, I care deeply about helping our faith communities to become places of, of inclusion and belonging and, and contribution for people with disabilities, and, and also for their families to, to shift from this kind of posture of, of exclusion to embrace, or as we often talk from ministry apart from people with disabilities to, to ministry to, or rather with and by people with disabilities. And so, you know, every, every call kind of anticipates a response. And so for me, the response is to work towards trying to create this new institute uh, that'll focus on disability and faith and flourishing that tries to kind of catalyze and connect the very best theological and empirical and practical work all at this these different intersections. And and most of all, uh, one thing I've learned from, from the USED work is that it has to translate all of that into practical resources, practical guidance that, that faith communities can use to widen their welcome. And so this is work that's going to really focus not just on faith communities, but also trying to get the, the service system uh, that is charged with supporting people with disabilities and their families to to support the spiritual practices and priorities uh, that that people have uh, who may serve. So I was surprised and overjoyed when I discovered that Baylor University felt this was a mission that was really worth investing in. And so, boy, in just a, a bit, I'll be moving to Texas to launch that work. You may very well be in Texas when we air this. 
Um, it sounds so exciting. You're so well positioned to do this work. And we're really, we're thrilled for you to continue this. And we're going to miss you. And so we're looking forward. We talked about looking forward a little bit, but let's talk about um, where you've come from. So when did you start at Vanderbilt? Was it back when you were uh, getting your master's in special education in the 1900s? <laughs> way, way back in the last century, right? Yep. Yeah. So when did I come to Vanderbilt? It, like it begs the question, which which time? Um, <laughs> because it's been a it's been a recurring destination. You know, Vanderbilt was a, an unexpected place for me, uh, but it's but a really welcome one. I was, I see, I was finishing my degree in uh, Christian education at Wheaton College, and frankly, I wanted to learn how to better teach and convey concepts to, to young adults with intellectual disability. And special ed, that was suggested as the field I ought to pursue. And then I thought what I would do is somehow integrate kind of this knowledge of religious education and special education to support inclusion in, in, in faith communities. So Nashville was, was obviously a much sleepier town then. <laughs> it wasn't really on my radar, but they had a training grant. Uh, so this is like free tuition, free schooling, and that was the ticket to, to stop along the interstate and say, this is a place to park. Um, and then, of course, I was here a couple of years. I left to teach high school special education uh, after a couple of years of my master's degree and then transitioned right back into doctoral studies uh, and then on to a faculty position. So it wasn't at all a hard sell to come back. Um, and there's so much attractive, really, about the place. So so I guess practically uh, you know, returning on faculty, that was a chance to be closer to family and to rejoin a community that I really loved. And then professionally, um, you know, it's a chance to work alongside and, and I'd say learn from some of the most outstanding researchers and advocates and leaders uh, in the field, in the world in this area. So um, I stumbled upon it and, and uh, it just kept drawing me back. It's been an incredible place to be. And you became co-director of the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center, you said, when? In 2020. That's so it right. was uh, also just a real gift to be able to do that alongside uh, Elise McMillan. But uh, my, my work has been so connected to the USED all of these years. Uh, it was uh, It's just been a place to park the research and the training and, and technical assistance work that we've had. And then to have the opportunity to, to lead it, at least for a time, to continue to grow its its reach and, and rigor has been a real treat as well. Absolutely. So let's talk about some of that work that you've done. Um, some of the common themes in your work um, are uh, belonging and learning and relationships. Um, can you tell me why these themes tend to carry through in your work and it's in almost all of the work that you do? Yeah, yeah, I think you you captured it well. I, I'm prone to is it alliteration? So I always <laughs> think about friendship and flourishing and faith as these themes that cut across uh, all all throughout the work that I've been doing. You know, I use the word stumbled a lot because I sometimes you know things you feel like pick you 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 uh, or that you were stumbled into things, and that was true for me at at age. Boy, 18, uh, when I had these unexpected encounters with other young adults with intellectual disability. And, and the things that really captivated me, I guess, were, were the friendships that we formed and then the faith that, that was so lived out by these particular individuals. And really the deep sense of, of belonging that I experienced in those friendships that, that was not like so many other relationships I had 
conditioned on my abilities or or my accomplishments. Uh, it was it was it came as a gift, really. And that set me on a course, honestly, of how do I help other young people stumble into relationships that they might not otherwise pursue, maybe um, inadvertently or deliberately. And uh, because friendships are in such, I would say, short supply these days, whether or not someone has an intellectual disability. And so this is a real place to park is how do we foster friendships in ways that are good for everyone involved? And then real inclusion still remains so elusive. Um, and and if you look around, you see a lot of, of what we might call thin, very thin counterfeits, kind of like the the veneer of it. And um, and that too hasn't hasn't changed in dramatic ways. And then you know that area of belonging that you mentioned, that's obviously a universal need, and yet we struggle to move in that direction. Um, so those are the things that just keep cutting across everything that I'm involved in is, is, you know, when we think about the flourishing of communities of which we all are a part and want to be a part, that happens best when, when every person is present and, and supported and needed and loved. And when there are no asterisks on that statement, every person. And so, yeah, that's just cut across because it was a personal experience. And um, I was the recipient of, of good gifts and you want to make sure um, everyone can be recipients of those good gifts. Absolutely. Um, and certainly all of those themes are present in one of the first projects that I want us to talk about, which is Tennessee works. Um, happy 10 year anniversary to Tennessee works actually. Um, it's a Tennessee works for those of you who don't know, it's a statewide partnership of agencies and organizations. Um, they're working together to increase the number of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who are employed in the state. So um, I'd love to hear how the partnership came about and who you partnered with, um, who you worked with on this project, first of all. Sure. Yeah. Uh, thank you. 10 years. It, Ten it years. flies by when we think about that. I remembered us all convening in this uh, one of the state agencies in, in a dark smoke filled room to plot. Actually, I'm kidding about that. There is no smoke in that room. But it was one of those <laughs> things where where you had all these people coming together to respond to this uh, grant opportunity that came from the Administration for Community Living. It was a grant opportunity that said states need to be about creating systematic, large scale change so that every person in that state who aspires to work has the very best shot at, at attaining that work. And that's what we wanted for, for Tennesseans as well. So it was just a group of, of representatives from state agencies and organizations. And along with Elise, uh, we, we got to convene that meeting and say, what would it look like to, uh, to pursue funding that would have a really good shot at changing that landscape? Uh, the incredible thing was we didn't get the grant. And yet... That's right. Everyone was like, let's do this work anyway. And so we just moved forward. We rebranded it as Tennessee Works and uh, and we stepped into that space. It, the wonderful thing was the year later, we reconvened again in a, in a similar kind of room, uh, sharpened our proposal and, and received that kind of funding. Um, so again, uh, unexpected, but uh, beautiful to see so many people saying this is, should be shared work. This is work that we do in concert. And that 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 funded grant. What 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 did you all do? What did you set out to do? Um, how'd you do it? Did... Yeah, well, it's long haul work, you know, it is. and it's uh, and it's complex work. It's not, you know, it's not 
just thinking one person at a time, but at a, at a systems level. We ended up kind of identifying these eight core areas that became places where we emphasized. And um, one of those was the need to raise the aspirations of people with disabilities toward work who, who might have never envisioned it for themselves because no one told them they had gifts that were needed in the workplace. And and then second, we focused on trying to raise expectations all around the state so that, that that was the thing that schools were pursuing and service systems were pursuing and families were expecting. And, and those expectations weren't the norm always at the time. And the third thing was recognizing that we really had to build capacity and commitment to this uh, among professionals all across the state so that that our schools were doing a good job of equipping young people for work, that our service systems had the skills to, to obtain jobs and support people on the jobs. And so a lot of training in that area. Uh, and the fourth area was recognizing that, you know, this is complicated for anyone to understand. So we needed to create resources that would be uh, accessible and information that would be easily uh, uh, easily received and understood by people with disabilities and their families. The fourth was uh, try to refine statewide policies. A lot of our policies weren't really aiming towards employment. In fact, sometimes they were aiming in opposite directions. Mm. So those had to be reoriented and raised in terms of policy aspirations. And then a really exciting part, which we may talk about later, was that we had to figure out ways to engage local communities in this, right? That's where employment happens. And so finding new ways of, of bringing people together to open up local employment opportunities and then, of course, if anyone knows me, we made sure it was a data-driven approach so that we were we were sort of collecting good data to guide our work and course correct. And out of that, we were telling uh, data not just in numbers, but also trying to tell compelling stories about what it looked like uh, and the difference it made when people with disabilities were, were sharing their talents in places of business where they wanted to share their talents. And now that that work is not done, but the, your work on that project is finished. Um, what did you do right? or what? And, and also, what, what could you do, have done differently, do you think? Right. Well, you notice I qualified. This is all long haul work, and it's the hardest right. work. Um, so it is ongoing. <clears throat> the grant ended, but the work continues uh, kind of under, under refined names as we think about our, our statewide employment first task force. But I think the thing we did right is convening the right partners, getting the right people together to say, this is a shared goal. There can be shared work and shared credit as we move towards this. So it was more than 40 or 50 different state agencies and disability organizations and projects uh, that instead of working in silos uh, in, in small ways in, in sort of regional areas, we did a good job of getting everyone in the same room and, and seeing it as uh, we're all part of Tennessee Works. Everything we do is Tennessee Works. In terms of different, you know, I think, I think, you know, we always needed and still need more on the ground work and supports in rural communities. Uh, you know, policy and legislation happens way, way high, way up here. I'm holding my hand up really high on the screen. Uh, but change happens at the level of local communities, right? That's, that's where it's embodied. And so you, you do need to find ways of, uh, of getting people on the ground and having that same depth of collaboration happening, you know, in Lawrence County or in Shelby County or in uh, in Clarksville or Chattanooga uh, to really see the kind of movement. And we've been doing that, but I think there's just more to pour into that space. 
Yeah. And I want to make sure to clarify that when I said the work was finished, um, the grant ended, but the work continues. I wanted to make sure I right, said that. Right, exactly. So did you, uh, over that 10-year period, did you, did employment num rates increase? Did, did you, did you know, did good things come from this yeah. over 10 years? Sure, sure they have. I think that one of the things we were celebrating this past year is that the gap between the employment of people with and without disabilities has narrowed in our state. Uh, but I, I got to say, we are so far short of our goal of ensuring that every Tennessean has the opportunities and, and the supports to obtain paid integrated employment. So we can celebrate our direction, but not our destination. There is just a lot more still to do. Uh, and fortunately, the work continues, I think, with just the same level of vigor and focus and vision. So I'm optimistic. It's just going to take a lot more kind of time and, and I don't know if there's a word, but keep at itness. <laughs> I like that whatever, word. Whatever yeah. the synonym is for that, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. Well, thanks for that. Um, you know, next I wanted to move on to um, a college program. You know, certainly one of the ways that we connect with a job is by going to college and by having a college experience. And so I wanted us to talk a little bit about Next Steps at Vanderbilt uh, and your involvement in that. Um, Next Steps at Vanderbilt obviously is our state's, well, it's actually our first inclusive higher education program in the state. Um, it started in 2010 uh, with a grant that was awarded by the Tennessee Council on Developmental Disabilities. Um, and the program did start here at Vanderbilt University uh, through our you said, which you have been co-directing. Um, and over the years, it really has become a program that, that provides a transformational post-secondary education experience for students with IDD. Um, I'd love to hear how you became involved in Next Steps um, and kind of what your vision was when you started. Because it was established. Well, yeah, right? it was already yeah. established. When I returned to Vanderbilt in 2010, that was the point of launch for the program. And so I had the opportunity to be on the advisory board at that time. But the invitation for a more formal engagement really came from a call from our dean, who at that time, the Vanderbilt and Vanderbilt Kennedy Center were, were legally separating. And because we are an inclusive higher ed program, it, uh, Next Steps needed an academic home. And so the question was, would Peabody take that on? Would Vanderbilt continue? And I was just thrilled when Camilla called and said, you know, we'd love to have you have some involvement in this program to to help set uh, a vision for an already um, incredible launch, but to take it kind of to its next step. So the goals for me in, in joining Tammy Day and Elise McMillan and others was just to expand the reach of the program and the and I would say the impact of the program to to develop what I would hope would become a model of what inclusive higher education could be. And remember, at the time the program was was developing really all around the country. It's kind of the wild west of these programs. Everyone's launching them. There's not a lot of guidance. Some uh, actually honor that word inclusive higher ed and others seem to not. And we wanted to make sure that Next Steps was, was sort of a marker of what uh, a program like this could be. One marked in, in, in uh, the words we often use by greater inclusion and deeper belonging. Mm. So how has it evolved? Um, have you, how have you seen it evolved and become stronger as a program? Right. Well, it's gone from a two-year program, which is, was originally designed as to a four-year program. Uh, 
uh, we uh, started with just a few students. Uh, at the time I joined as faculty advisor, we went from 15 students to now 37, 38 students. We've had more than 150 faculty all across the campus who've had this wonderful opportunity to teach students uh, enrolled through the Next Steps program in their uh, inclusive Vanderbilt classes. And we have a vibrant uh, peer mentoring program we call the Ambassadors. Uh, I think most recently what excites me is that we're moving to this place of really trying to think about equipping young people with intellectual disability for, for leadership roles. And so we've launched a new program in that area and, uh, and are working still towards an array of residential options. So, you know, those are all kind of concrete things. I think the things that jump out to me that are these markers of progress is we're starting to see uh, people talk about uh, the students enrolled through Next Steps as our students rather than your students. And we're starting to see them be considered as a forethought in all the planning that happens at Vanderbilt rather than kind of an afterthought. And how do we accommodate? And that's those are not insignificant changes in it's my beautiful. View. Yeah. No, not at all. That's wonderful. Also, taking like a, sort of a broader view, what do you think these programs of inclusive higher ed are having? What kind of impact are they having across the country and um, and in for people with disabilities? Yeah. Well, the hope is that they'd have the same impact uh, on students with intellectual disability as they would for any student that that our students are discovering their their passions and vocation that they're that they're learning about the world around them and their place in it that they're building lifelong friendships and experiencing personal growth uh learning from mistakes uh having fun <laughs> having a, a real career pathway i mean these are this is what it should do if it's truly inclusive and the same kinds of impact that we see for anyone ought to also uh, be evident among students enrolled through these programs but i think all the more for our students, the impact is in the areas of having valued roles uh, and um, and developing in their leadership and self-determination of, of experiencing belonging in a community. And I think our outcome data tells us that they have they have changed trajectories, that the, the path that they're doing is different because of the years that they've had here at Vanderbilt. And uh, so I think that's part of the impact. I, I would change the question a little bit, I think, mm -hmm. Courtney, and I'd say, what's the impact of the program on anyone? Because uh, yep. I think that we're really, we're really interested on how everyone else who's part of this learning community is shaped by this experience. But, you know, inclusion, we often think about inclusion as happening at the level of individuals, and that's where you measure it. But the community really is the unit of analysis when we think about inclusion, right? And what and so what's the difference for everyone in that community? And and so how are undergrads at Vanderbilt different? Because some of the formative experience that they received is is happened alongside people that they might not have otherwise encountered growing up or in their other schools. And and what difference is it making for faculty who are having them in their class and in terms of the way they teach and think about their subject or for those ambassadors who, who do get really intimately involved in the lives of our students, uh, the, the ways that changes their mindsets and attitudes and understanding and advocacy and, and career paths, I'd say. And, and then, of course, employers uh, who have the chance to hire our students or, or administration who I think, 
you know, when I think about Vanderbilt being a place committed to, you know, diversity and equity and inclusion, Next Steps is what embodies that. It is a concrete manifestation of what we say we believe. And so, you know, all of that to me means the impact isn't just about 37 or 38 students. It's it's a, a ripple effect on a community of 2,000, 20,000, right? 20,000 something students, staff, faculty, and others. So uh, it's a big deal. <laughs> and I know you already know that, but it's a big deal. It is. I agree. Well, you you did a great big deal of good in it So <laughs> while you were there. Um, so now I do want to switch uh, gears a little bit, but um, we are going to talk about another employment project of yours, Putting Faith to Work. Um, and this is a two-year project that you led in two states, oh, four states. Uh, I was a pr- I was privileged to be a part of this really fun project, impactful. To, um, and this is a, it's a model uh, that faith communities can use to connect job seekers with disabilities to paid employment. Um, so how did, where did this idea come from? Well, it's, it's uh, interestingly, it's just, it's an old idea, right? It's the idea that communities come alongside their members who need support and uh, faith communities when people are out of work, uh, it's not unusual for, for faith communities to come together and say, what can we do to help make you help connect you to that kind of work? And so my colleagues at the time, uh, Bill Gaventa and uh, Harold Kleiner, Derek Nord, and others, all of us were trying to move this employment landscape that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. And then we started to realize, well, we've always known, is that the service system is currently insufficient to meet the employment needs of people with disabilities. And it probably will always be, I would argue. So we need other ways of engaging communities. And, you know, and it's also an opportunity we saw for faith communities to start caring about their members, right, all seven days of the week. Uh, so there's theological importance to to the area of work, the dignity and the purpose and calling that comes through that. We just wanted to apply that also to uh, the employment needs of people with disabilities and, and ask the question is, is this an ordinary pathway uh, to employment? Um, and thus the project was born. So what does it look like? What What does it look like in action? How did you yeah, a day was, in the it, life of putting faith to work. It was. There's no day in the life. It feels like it was a year in the life, uh, which is interesting. <laughs> two years because, in the life. Yeah, two years. But it, you know, it's new territory. It was new territory for congregations. It's not that they didn't maybe know how to come alongside uh, people out of work. Uh, although even that was new territory for some for some congregations. But I think a lot of them felt like, you know, we don't have expertise in disability. And so thus we wouldn't know how to help people with disabilities find their way to work. So there was a lot of reminding congregations that they already really probably know what they need to know and that their their church, their synagogue, their mosque is already filled with people who could be really instrumental in making this happen. So the gist of it was uh, for, a, for a, a congregation member who had disabilities to invite a group of people from that local congregation some who knew the individual, family members, and maybe even some who didn't know the individual, but were just pretty kind of connected people, to invite them to get to know the person with disability. We did these kinds of, we didn't call them that, but person-centered planning meetings where we got together around a person's favorite meal and snacks and invited people to speak into questions like, what is this? what would this person love to do? What What are the things that, there are the gifts and strengths they could they could bring to the workplace? What are the 
what's a sense of calling they might have? And who do we know in this congregation who is in a position to make a connection or make a hire or make a referral uh, or who shops in a place or works in a place or is neighbors with someone who could find a place for that person's gifts and strengths? So it's like good person-centered planning and good community connections, but congregations just needed guidance on how to do that. And uh, and that's what we did is we learned with them about what this would look like. We knew it couldn't be recipe work. And we knew that we uh, we we would take a lot of twists and turns and, and uh, it would take time. But we learned a lot. And uh, if you're interested, listeners, in learning more, we have a wonderful free guide on what it looked like in the churches that we partnered with. Uh, and that's uh, can be found at puttingfaithtowork.org. You can download that guide and, and learn more about what it might look like in your own local community. And what was so interesting was that you said uh, you mentioned learning with because we really were and your team was really learning with um, and we were documenting every single thing that happened, every single meeting, every single person centered planning session um, and to write that guide. And so that guide was actually written on the ground yeah. <laughs> as you know, it was just a fascinating way to approach creating such an impactful pro project. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, um, well, how was the, how was this, uh, what did you, what did you, what did you, what did you learn the most? Like what's some highlights of something that you, what did you learn from this project either professionally or for that field or. Yeah. You know, one we learned is that uh, congregations could do this. It, it took longer than we thought. It was uh, more stretched out or prolonged often than we thought, but, but uh, many congregations got it. And, a lot of people with disabilities got jobs for the first time with no service system involvement. I mean, that was pretty, that was pretty incredible. But I, I think what I learned is that that actually new jobs, while that was probably the obvious impact of, of the project was, I don't know that that was the most powerful. I think it was that through this process of sitting down with individuals and walking alongside families, that we saw people with developmental disabilities becoming known and I would say needed in their congregations. I mean, the idea of like learning about this person and discovering, oh my goodness, this person has all kinds of gifts. Why, why aren't they serving in the church? Why aren't they part of more of what we offer? So I think, you know, that happened for some individuals. So I think that's part of what, what came out of the work. Um, I think in terms of sort of my own experience, this was different work for me. Um, you know, this is a partner that's not mandated to do this work. There's no federal law saying they have to. There's no external accountability. But I think that they, with a little discussion and sometimes persuasion, they can realize that this is part of the call they have at a, as a congregation. And um, so, I, you know, the pace and timeline were different because these are all volunteers. They're people who, you know, who love their fellow congregation members, but they're fitting this in alongside all the other things they do. They they don't really feel like they have a lot of expertise. And so it was a lot of patient uh, work and people people just uh, taking steps forward, taking steps back. Um, and I think there was even some hesitation about whether this was the role, uh, uh, was, was their role in some congregations and whether they had the expertise. So there was a lot of reminding communities that of course this is their role. And of course you know what to do. And the places where you don't, where you feel a little, uh, your vision might be a little uh, shorter or your expertise a little thinner, 
that there's disability organizations like the USAID and others that can come alongside you and, and guide you in the way. So it really just deepened my commitment to uh, to partnering with sort of what we always call the unusual suspects, the non-service system people, people outside of the disability world that actually have a lot of uh, contributions to make if they're really invited and supported along the way. That's wonderful. Yeah. I hope that putting faith to work will be a large part of what you continue to do through your work when you move yeah. to Baylor. Um, so. Okay, so now I'm going to switch gears a little bit, and I'm going to—I did solicit some questions from some of your colleagues, and I just made this section segment up, but it's called um, "Colleague Question Corner." Um, so, if you will, I am going to ask the first question on behalf of Vanderbilt Kennedy Center Director Jeffrey Newell, and Dr. Newell asks. What do you think are the greatest challenges uh, in the work of a place like the VKC, helping people with developmental disabilities and their families? And where are the opportunities that we could make the most impact? Yeah, it's a, a great question. I've loved working with Jeff and appreciated his leadership so much. I think from, from a center like, like ours, from that vantage point, I think we see, we see kind of the whole landscape of needs and opportunities in our state. And so... That becomes the challenge. We see how much uh, really there is to be done. And the challenge then becomes deciding where do you really park uh, deeper and longer in light of always constrained resources, right? You can't do everything. You can't change everything. And so trying to figure out what are the priorities that are going to have the biggest impact. That to me is the is the recurring challenge. And so when I think about that too, two thoughts come to mind, both of which I, I would argue that the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center already does pretty well. And the first is that we have to be listening to people with disabilities and their families to learn what matters most to them and what projects to prioritize. And uh, we are so quick in our field to make assumptions and, and so short on uh, on doing good asking. And so I think, you know, the CAC, the, the Community Advisory Council, is a really good example of where we seek guidance on where to park our time to meet the most pressing of those needs or to do so in ways that are going to have the largest ripple effect. You know, another example is, is a couple years ago when we launched the Tennessee Disability Services Study, where we took that question back to people with disabilities and families across the state, 3,000 plus, and said, what matters most to you? And what are the things that stand in the way of you experiencing those things that matter most? So I, I'm just afraid without those kinds of insights, we're really prone to wander as a, as a center and, and to get things wrong. And uh, I think the second thing that comes to mind then is that we really have to, to strengthen our collaborations with all of those state agencies and disability organizations across the state to kind of combine and leverage our resources so that we're really able to do you know, things a lot, a lot more than we could on our own in that sense. And here too, I think we've done an incredible job with this. We talked about uh, transition or Tennessee Works, for example, and the partnerships that the, that the center has with the DD Council and with uh, education and DIDD, uh, Department of Intellectual and Development Disabilities, and the Department of Human Services, and others to be able to bring this work to scale. I think that's what's critical if you're going to make an impact all the way from Memphis to Bristol or to Clarksville to Chattanooga. So we see examples of that kind of work in, in Tennessee Works and Pathfinder and Transition Tennessee to kind of name a few of these. So 
I think those two become really important ways. I would add, you know, just another is is something that I think we could do even better is to try to introduce or or maybe interject disability into the work of other groups that are already trying to address housing and employment and health and community access that don't have disability on their radar. So rather than simply saying, how do we sort of coalesce people around disability to do employment work, where's the best employment work happening and how do we help them attend to disability in that? And then again, we're starting to multiply our efforts. So that's a real challenge, uh, but an opportunity for the center. Yeah, very well said. Okay, second question is coming from Ben Schwartzman. Um, he's at from the Tennessee Employment Pathways Project. And he asks, thinking back to your time as a special educator in the classroom, to completing your doctorate, to becoming a professor, to speaking nationally and internationally, what are some of the most promising changes that you've seen in the field of disability and transition uh, from the 90s until now, from the 1990s until now, 1900s? Well, I don't know. Maybe the maybe the best uh, uh, progress you've made is I don't have to print my overheads anymore when, <laughs> when I go to conference. <laughs> Although I've become PowerPoint dependent now, but uh, you know, it's that's a really good question. Um, I think uh, you know, I'll focus maybe on inclusive practices here. I think that over those three decades, we have seen many. I would say new kind of portraits of community emerging. You know, in the early 1990s, uh, we saw a lot of segregation and separation, a lot of part-time mainstreaming, um, temporary uh, uh, inclusion uh, or uh, integration, we called it. But we started to see those, those portraits of community change quite a bit. Uh, a lot more examples of inclusion where where kids with and without disabilities are, are uh, learning together and uh, hanging out together and uh, working together and living together in community. That really is one community where the barriers of proximity are broken down. I think we're seeing a lot more examples of that all throughout the state. And then, you know, if you've heard me talk before, I think we're seeing examples of going beyond that inclusion to, to pockets of real belonging happening in communities. Again, peppered throughout the state, uh, still not in widespread ways, but the fact that the conversation has shifted from how do we just get people into a place to now how do we think about the relationships that people forge in those places and the learning they experience and the belonging they experience to me is incredible progress. Uh, on the other hand, you know, uh, I thought we would be much further along than uh, than we are in that sense. And there's still a lot of barriers that that abound for sure. Uh, we don't see inclusion and belonging as really ordinary and unremarkable experiences. We still celebrate them, I think, because they're, they're rarer than they are more common. I think in the area of transition, the huge progress that I see is in, is in the area you already mentioned, the explosion of post-secondary education opportunities for students with intellectual disability. And the fact that Next Steps was at the at the origins of that in our state and has been like the model that so many people around the country has gone to is a real testament to Tammy's work and her team and Elise and the USED's team. And um, so I think that too, uh, when I took, when I was trained as a teacher, a transition teacher, 
back in those 1990s, we didn't even talk about uh, inclusion in college for students with intellectual. It wasn't even in the books. So how incredible to know that now several hundred uh, programs exist all around the country. A lot of good movement. Sure. Um, so Emily uh, Lanchek, uh, your colleague and, and an educational consultant with Transition Tennessee, she wants to know, uh, one of your interest areas is around calling and the sense of calling many professionals in the disability space feel toward their work. Can you tell us about a time, it could be a particular project, story, or conversation during your years at Vanderbilt that either inspired or affirmed your motivation and passion for your work? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think so many people in in the field of disability might use that language of calling or vocation or other kinds of synonyms to that as they as they talk about the things that really draw them into this work or or about the things that that sustain them in it along the way. For me, I would describe that as a religious calling it, that emerges really from my own faith, but others for others it comes from all kinds of different sources, right? The sense that that this is what we were made to do, or we just cannot help but do uh, this welling up of, of deep purpose or or justice work in that sense. So I think that's more common than we talk about. And uh, for me, that calling came, you know, as I mentioned earlier, from from an unexpected encounter when I stumbled into these relationships and 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 really, ex- I would say, encountered this this friendship and and character and faith that was enviable that was transformative for me and that was the point where i think that you know from from my perspective that that's the time god really placed this passion and gifting and desire in me to really go fully into that work uh and it was a totally different it was a totally different path than i envisioned when i entered college i should i mean by now i would have been the president of coca-cola for sure (laughs) right but that's not the way it was supposed to be and so I think that's you do like Coca Cola. I do like I do I do. Um, I, don't I think know we, have if you give, do. we have to we we have to give equal time to Pepsi. Probably that's right. That's center, right. But, oh. um, but anyway, that's that's what I've been doing ever since. It's 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 trying to uh, live that out in what I experience as my calling, but also to try to awaken that sense of purpose and 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 calling that that my students have, whatever form that might take and whatever the source. And I mean, we were talking the other day, it's, it's affirmed every day when that sort of collision of your, your passions meet, meet pressing needs in the community. And that's the sweet spot that we want to be in personally. It's a sweet spot. We want people with disabilities to be in, to live out their calling. And I think that it's that kind of calling that sustains us in work that is really hard and where we see very little change and can can really um uh can really be hard to keep at it unless we have this sort of welling up that we just must keep at it because it's the thing we're supposed to do so thanks yeah um elise mcmillan your partner in crime in the you said she co-directs with you um she has a question have you, how have you seen things change for people with disabilities and their families in the state of Tennessee since you first came to Nashville as a graduate student? What's gotten better? What's still a challenge here in the state? Yeah, well, see what's gotten worse. I think that uh, Nashvilleans and Tennesseans now have to deal with traffic and pedal taverns and scooters. That's yep. bad for people with and without disability. It's gotten Absolutely. worse. Absolutely. <laughs> 
but um, seriously, I, I think uh, I think to start with the things that have been in the challenge, we are, I think, in the midst of a lot of discouragement right now among practitioners and educators and, and direct support providers, exhaustion from the pandemic, um, uh, frustration uh, of, of the limited change that we want to see. And so, you know, we're called to this work so often, but, but people find that the supports and the resources and the conditions of their work can, can be difficult to endure. And we have to find ways of doing better there in terms of that sense of, of making sure that the people who are on the ground doing this work are supported and uh, nurtured and equipped uh, for that work. That's critical. And it's just become harder these last four or five years um, but that's part kind of what's better. I think um, the collaborations in our state are stronger than ever. Uh, honestly, if you travel outside of Tennessee, the kinds of collaborations that the center has and the disability community has here is it is the envy of many states. Uh, so we've done a lot better there. I think we uh, we've done a lot better in terms of of the voices of people with disabilities and their families becoming more prominent. Um, and, and leading in so many areas. We have a lot more work to do there to amplify those voices, but that's very different than what we saw 20 or 30 years ago where, where the best experts were professionals. And, uh, and I, I should put that in quotes, but right. we've, uh, we've realized that, 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 um, that the leading influence uh, has to be those with disabilities and their families. And I think the vision of what's possible now uh, for young people with disabilities, for what young people with intellectual disabilities and in can accomplish and and do with the right encouragement and supports and opportunities is is grander than ever. I, I think the 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 type of community, the abundant lives that we envision, uh, are so much easier to envision now. Even though we're not all the way there, uh, that vision is uh, is so attractive, and I think much more widespread. And then the last of these things that's changed for the better is I think the reach of, of our work is much wider, you know, from east, west, north, south, highways, off ramps, everything in between. I think there are more and more people who are directly impacted by the work of this center, by its programs, by its partners, by its collaborations, by its resources. And, uh, um, and all of those things kind of coalesce to just a, a greater hope and anticipation that we're uh, that we might actually arrive at that sort of place that we what we're aiming for as a field to to, to have people experience real uh, connection to community and and valued roles and um, inclusion and belonging and well being that uh, any Tennessean would want for themselves. Our final question on uh, colleague question corner comes from the Community Advisory Council. Um, Brashawn Jemison is a graduate of the Next Steps at Vanderbilt program that we talked about earlier, and he also is the current chair of our Kennedy Center um, Community Advisory Council, or CAC. We might You might hear us say CAC. Um, this question comes from Brashawn and his co-chair, Tanya Bowman. They have a question. They want to know what your greatest joy from working at the VKC you said is, and how will that joy impact your future work? I love that I have colleagues that ask such good questions and positive questions. So, uh, and I've loved getting to work with Brashawn and Tanya, but incredible leaders of that CAC. So, I mean, 
question of what's the greatest joy, it has to be the people. It's just incredible joy from being around people who share the same passions and a uh, sense of drive and vision who are all working together to make, make change. I think the work with undergrads and grad students who are so incredibly curious and smart and bring this optimism. Um, they, 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 they just want to change the world and they wonder why we are all so slow in doing that. And that's incredible to work along them. And then of course, staff uh, who just bring this deep commitment and uh, collaborativeness and creativity that make it possible to take really ambitious ideas that actually have them happen. I mean, that's, that to me is just a theme of the center is these bold ideas where they actually have a good shot of, uh, of getting flesh to them and, and becoming a reality. And then of course there's faculty uh, that I've gotten to work with in my department at Peabody, Vanderbilt through the Kennedy Center, who, who also just pour everything they have into this work. And, uh, and they just won't be settled until things are different, until Till wrong things are right and, and doors are opened. And I've just learned so much about becoming a scholar and the leader from them. And then, of course, I think about the leaders uh, of this work that I've gotten to learn from, like Elise, who you mentioned, and Jeff and Yvonne Lee and Pablo Juarez and others who just have this vision that is so just so compelling and these values that are so deep uh, that you can't but help follow along with them. And uh, yeah. So, you know, you hope you, those are things I've soaked in. You hope you've been part of that joy for others in the midst of that work. But like I said, the work I've been doing, um, it's just been a, a sweet spot to park it. And I, I just want so much for the center to continue flourishing in that work and, and, and advancing the flourishing of everyone whom they touch. Well, you absolutely have infused joy into the work here. So thank you for that and know that. Um, and so that's all the questions I have, but I'm just curious to find out if there's anything else you want to share or talk about before we leave today. Just gratitude, uh, Courtney, to you specifically, who've been so much a part of the projects that I've, I've been able to be a part of uh, and the way you and Elizabeth and others tell such good stories about what we're doing and, and why it matters and uh and gratitude just for this incredible place to work with people i know who i'm gonna just miss really dearly you absolutely among them courtney but but so many others as well so uh just thank you i'll just end with that well back at you and we all will all zoom away <laughs> well thank you so much for talking with me i learned a lot i knew some things but i also learned a lot i hope our listeners learned a lot too um Good luck in Texas. Good luck at Baylor. We're going to be following you and hopefully collaborating and partnering with you in the future on that work. Thank you so much. Thank you, Courtney. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Promise of Discovery. Be sure to visit the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center website at vkc.vumc.org to learn more about today's episode. And tune in next time for more on the innovative research and intellectual and developmental disabilities from the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center.